Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Terry murdered a child. The evidence and the counter-evidence. I'm struggling with that. When the facts are filled with coincidences... Don't dismiss those coincidences. I have no tolerance for the unexplainable. Well then, sir, you'll have no tolerance for me. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Still Watching The Outsider. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. This week we will be discussing episode four, Que Viene El Coco, only... Events from this episode will be in discussion. However, this show, this is a show that is based on a novel by Stephen King. There are some differences from the book and the significant differences from the book and the episode this week. We will be discussing those departures. Um, I don't consider that a spoiler. It, I won't be talking about anything that happens in the future. Um, I just think it's worth noting some things that were added for the TV show. But I want to warn you guys uh, up at the top because we got a little bit of a salty um, email about a spoiler uh, from our first episode uh, when I said Jason ba- Bateman briefly stars uh, in the show. And Whoops. I guess <laughs> someone hadn't watched the episode yet. Anyway. Well, hey, so- he's in this episode, technically, so... That mm-hmm. shaggy hair cannot be mm-hmm. cannot be denied. Uh, so yeah, so if you've never listened to an episode of Still Watching Before, what we do is we we pick a show, we watch it. We're watching The Outsider on HBO on Sunday nights. We break down the episode in question, and we read your emails. And it's basically like a little TV club. That's what we do. We're a little little TV club uh, discussing Stephen King and creepy child murder. It's, it's uh, fun times. So we are going to start first with some feedback from you all. We got some emails and then also someone tweeted at us this morning. Um, so I actually thought I'd start with this tweet, which comes from Alex Greenfield um, at, at Alex D. Greenfield, who writes, um, listening to you still watching The Outsider with uh, Joanna and Richard, fascinating conversation regarding Holly. I'm disappointed the showrunner says he's ignoring the Hodges trilogy. That's the Mr. Mercedes uh, stuff that I was talking about last week. Uh, in that both her ability to connect with others and awareness of supernatural are born there. When we meet her in Outsider, it is in the wake of losing her closest true friend. It's in and through her relationship with Ralph and the others that she rediscovers herself. Um, anyway, I want to geek out on King with Lawson and Robinson for hours. Great pot. So thank you, Alex. Thanks for that little compliment at the end. Thanks for um, keeping the compliment in, Joanna. I appreciate it. <laughs> I just thought I'd read that. Um, and I'll, I just like it when people call me by my last name. That's the thing. I like it makes me feel like a cub reporter. So, um, I thought I'd leave it in there. Um, yeah. So I, I just think that's interesting. That's a little bit of context that we're missing. Uh, probably it was not factored into this creation of Holly. And I, and I believe that Cynthia Rivo also said that she hadn't read the book. So like, she's not even using that to influence her performance, but I do think situationally, it's interesting to think about this character as someone who maybe has lost their main anchor. And that's something that she talks about 
uh, in this episode with her relationship with her mother. We can get to that, but, um, someone who's maybe lost a main relationship that anchors her and is sort of seeking it out in the form of, uh, this character, Ralph Anderson. Um, does that, does that do anything for you, Richard? Well, I mean, I think the only thing that I can kind of think of as to why, like Richard Price, uh, who's doing most of this adaptation would choose to kind of, not minimize Holly's kind of backstory or anything, but kind of ground it is that like the whole arc of the show thus far seems to be about normal people realizing that something very unnormal is happening. And I think that if Holly's character had too much of a sort of backstory that, that seems from, you know, that was kind of more in line with unnormal things, maybe the impact wouldn't be the same, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that that's right. And I, you know, I think we, I think I made a joking reference to like Mulder and Scully and she's definitely like the one who's open to these things. Whereas Ralph is like closed off. So that that's definitely their difference. But you're right that if, if she's like, well, listen, you won't believe what happened to me last Tuesday mm-hmm. is sort of like a different, a different place to come at that from. Yeah. So. And I think in the Mulder and Scully dynamic, uh, which as much as it's there between her and Ralph, like, she's not a crackpot. You know, that's the thing is like, I think that what's so great about her character in this episode in particular is just how sort of, um, open and uh, like attentive and, and she is and like willing to like listen to people and, and sort of process that information and synthesize it later, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I like, I like that she doesn't seem to have an agenda beyond like a curiosity. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, and then we got two, uh, pig related emails and this seems to be, uh, our lot in life, uh, ever since sharp objects. So, uh, let's start with this one from Andy, which is titled, uh, big daddy's hangry barbecue. Uh, I, I will leave the compliment out that starts this <laughs> the email. Um, I have a theory that I'd like your feedback on. Big Daddy's Hangry Barbecue seems to me to be symbolic of Terry's father's anger and violence issues, which were alluded to in episode two. They were visiting his father who lashed out at Terry. Big Daddy's Hangry. And that's where the van started following Terry. I think that the evil itself emanates from Terry's dad, or at least has infected him for a long time and has been misunderstood in some way as dementia. Let me know your thoughts. I mean, we could talk about doing an event with you guys at the Paley Center one day. Oh, thanks, Andy. Oh, Andy works at the Paley Center. Oh, I didn't realize that. Thanks, Andy. Uh, A little bit of career uh, news uh, smuggled in there. That took a turn. Yeah, yeah, so um, I think this episode sort of disproves Andy's theory, but um, I I love the reach for it. Um, And I think, uh, do you want to talk about this email at all? I think the next one sort of uh, compliments it, but I want to make sure you get your daddy hangry, uh, well, thoughts in there. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that we're just keeping the memory of, you know, the hangry barbecue alive and well. Um, I, I think that when looking at a King adaptation, uh, again, let me stress for the fourth time in the fourth episode, I have never read a Stephen King novel, but I have seen many adaptations of his work. So forgive me if I'm assuming too much about Stephen King's work, but like, I think there's nothing wrong with assuming thematic illusions tie-ins and kind of everywhere you look you know whether or not it's going to kind of loom as a big part of the narrative it might just be there as sort of interesting background texture um excellent um and then this one comes from kate it's called hog thoughts (laughs) um (laughs) and uh she says i had an observation about a scene in the first slash second episode of the outsider uh, and another random one about the cast that's neither here nor there, but gave me a little thrill. Uh, when we meet Jack Hoskins in the woods on his hog hunt, uh, Jack Hoskins is who I've decided to refer to as Boyle Neck, but you can call him whatever you want. Rash Neck? I don't know. But in my notes this week, he's just good old Boyle Neck. So, uh, this is our, our hangry, uh, cop. Uh, so when we meet Jack Hoskins in the wood on his hog hunt, he gets a text to return to the office ASAP. But he hasn't fired any shots at the hog he's been hunting. However, after he leaves the woods, there's a cutaway shot to the body of the hog, and it very much looks like it's been mutilated, much like the body of Frankie Peterson was, rather than shot. This makes me think that the dark force slash outsider has killed again and has Jack in its sight somehow, especially given his later encounter alone in the barn. Uh, regardless of how the hog met its demise, it's great to see that hogs have become the unofficial mascot of the pod. I'm here for it. Thanks, Kate. Um, and then Kate just, uh, notes that, uh, Yul Vasquez, 
she realized where she knew the actor Yul Vasquez from that she knows him from Russian Doll, uh, who along with Jeremy Bob, who plays Alec Pelly, uh, in this show was also in Russian Doll. And so she's got all of her fingers crossed that Greta Lee from Russian Doll shows up in Outsider episode six. So, um, yeah, here's, here's for that Russian Doll connection. Something that I found out that I thought was interesting. Um, is that we already mentioned that, uh, in an earlier episode that the character of Holly Gibney, uh, is uh, maybe written as, or at least has been played as white in other, um, adaptations. And we've got Cynthia Erivo, um, a black actress playing her here. And apparently that is, uh, Richard Price said that is because Jason Bateman really wanted to cast Cynthia Erivo, uh, specifically in this role. And Richard Price said he had written the character as Lithuanian American, um, but that, that Bateman had to have a Revo. And, um, I kind of love, I love that for Bateman. And I love that for Cynthia Revo that, uh, Bateman's a huge fan of hers as he should be. And the Lithuanian um, got yeah. in there anyway. Yes, it's true. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Uh, so let us... Uh... Let us talk about Kate's emails. I mean, once again, I think this is close but slightly off because I think we know who the outsider's next victim is. Uh, we figured that out this week. Um, but Jack is obviously like in his, like a thrall, like in his thrall sort of thing seems to be. He's, uh, Renfield. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, Instead of eating bugs, he's like shopping at Target. Um, which, which this might be a good excuse for us just to talk, uh, about what, uh, Jack, AKA Boyle Neck is up to this week, which is like, he goes to Target, he's being weirded and, um, at work, and then he dumps everything he buys from Target or some, some sort of hardware store, uh, Home Depot, whatever, uh, including a lot of lamps in the woods near a mutilated deer corpse, uh, and he was seen dragging the deer corpse earlier. I think that's the full extent of his journeys in this episode. Um, any, any, Thoughts on that? On <laughs> why, why the lamps in the woods? I'm very confused about that. So we see this mutilated deer, much like we saw a mutilated, um, feral hog earlier in the season. Right. Um, and he's set up, it's not like he's set up a room, uh, out in the woods. There is a lamp kind of standing up, but like, it, otherwise it just seems like kind of like random if stuff. And I'm just wondering, is it some sort of like modern, sacrificial altar like i'm just not really i, I don't know it's it, that was a confusing bit i mean this whole episode introduces a lot of things that for a while you were like huh and then it comes together but i feel like that was the one that didn't yeah that's the one where we're gonna have to wait and see why lamps in the woods like there's a sleeping bag too and a few other things and maybe that little clearing in the woods is close enough to an outlet that he could like hook those lamps up or a generator i don't know but the lamps in the woods, cause it's not just like the big lamp. There's also like a little Pixar lamp. Like it's mm-hmm. very, it's very confusing. So, uh, we'll see what happens in the woods, but that is what, uh, Jack is up to, um, in this episode. A lot of this episode is about Holly and I want to get to that and all of her discoveries as well. But I, I want to talk about this revelation. I guess I had missed, um, 
the fact that the character that uh, Patty Considine is playing, uh, Claude Bolton, who's the manager of the strip club, uh, got a scratch mm-hmm. on his hand. So, uh, which feels very much, given what we understand of how this uh, evil moves, means he's next, which helps us understand why this actor who of such great caliber has been cast uh, in this seemingly peripheral role. Does that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Something is, um, it's funny. I had seen this episode before a few weeks ago, um, because I reviewed this, the show. Um, but I, I guess I'd forgotten that or something like, or missed it. Like, I don't know. I think that, um, this episode in particular offers so much new information that I guess I had sort of forgotten that that particular tidbit. So, um, yeah, it give it helps give what we've seen so far and, and, uh, a, a, a better sense of shape, which I appreciate. Yeah. And it's interesting because, um, the, oh, I mean, I don't blame you. I've, I'm not, that, I've done that before myself. You know, you get like five episodes of screeners. You have to like review something or whatever, and you sort of watch them all at once and it's easy to miss smaller details. And then when you slow down and talk about something week to week and podcast about it week to week, you're like more on the alert, uh, for details. So I do not blame you, uh, for missing this or forgetting this. But yeah, it looks like, it looks like we know it's funny because this episode sees Holly trace, you know, the journey of, of this evil backwards. And I, I don't know what's wrong with me, but like, I kind of want to see, I want to like, I'm like, and who scratched her and who scratched him? And it, like, how far back does it go? Um, but we're probably going to follow this thing forward because a character we know, uh, has been scratched next. So, um, we'll see where, where it goes from there. But the way we understand the journey is that this woman, Maria, who we meet in, in Rikers, uh, got scratched and doppelganged that doppelganger scratched Heath and his doppelganger scratched Terry and Terry's doppelganger scratched Claude. So that's the journey of the, of the scratching and the evil. Um, and we'll see what, what Claude does next. One thing that's very smart about this evil entity as it moves around is that it, um, is spreading itself out, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, we we're we're bopping around states so that it's not like all concentrated in one area. Um, but one thing I was really gratified to have confirmed in this episode is something that we've been talking about, which is this thing where like this figure, this outsider who scratches people, doppelgangs them, and then kills children, doesn't just kill children, but um, spreads that uh, evil to the family in terms of. Um, either both the family of the victim and the family of the person wrongfully accused uh, wind up like dying or killing themselves or killing each other or whatever in these horrible, gruesome ways, which we see play out in both Maria's family and Heath's family. Um, what did you think of that, of that uh, notion in this episode? Yeah. I mean, I think that we see so much more clearly some of this entity's MO. I think, you know, I think actually interestingly in terms of it clearly has this survival mechanism in place, which is like to keep moving. So nothing, nothing is too concentrated, which then makes you wonder, well, then why is he or why is it uh, transferring, you know, to someone else who lives in the same town as Terry Maitland, you know? Um, so I'll be curious to see how that shakes out. But um, I liked uh, what this episode did in the more macro sense of talking about that kind of grief eating and, 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 and this, this really menacing force that, um, might literally in a physical sense feed on the bodies of children, but then in a more abstract sense, get something else from, I don't know, whatever is given off by these ripples of grief and death and and everything like that. Um, and I, I like in a sort of thematic, like a kind of more, allegorical way that it is uh, it it's some in some ways about people trying to comprehend um linked tragedy you know which to, which that does happen you know that happens right. in the real world and i think right. that like I, i'll be curious to see like i mean obviously it's stephen king so he's probably going to go pretty literal on the supernatural i mean it's already kind of in the series but like um but i mean there's like forensics in terms of of this this being but like 
um, I'll be curious to see like where the kind of thematic, more again, more allegorical thing kind of ties in, um, because I feel like it could be heading to something kind of moving and really, really satisfying. Yeah, and especially since we have this character of Ralph Anderson who has not related to the entity as far as we know, his own like grief that's haunting his family, right? Um, so I, I just think that that's interesting. Um, okay, so one other quick email that we got a, a couple days ago from Kyle, uh, and he writes to say, want to mention uh, that I don't think King is getting enough credit for the things you're liking about the show. Uh, you're giving that credit to Richard Price. The show so far is a very faithful adaptation and the things you're enjoying, such as the relationship between Gloria and Jeannie is all text in the books. Um, and then he says like, thanks, thanks for doing a King show. Um, and, and that, and you know, uh, Richard and I both not as King experts and not having read the source material, uh, you know, I welcome, uh, corrections about assumptions we're making about adaptation. Um, we are going to talk about some things that I believe depart from the books, um, in, in this episode, but that's nice to know. I, I did make the assumption that that had been added in for this and it's nice to know that that stuff is in the books. This, you know, speaking of that, like, widespread grief eating effect. Um, I think it's, it's not nice, but it's interesting to see, um, you know, we see how it affects these various families. We've seen how it affects, um, you know, the, the Terry fake Terry Maitland's victim, but, uh, to see it, uh, sort of bubble up against glory in this episode, when she tries to eat in the restaurant, um, I thought was like a pretty, I thought it was pretty like subtle uh version of of watching the the things that she's having to grapple with and and go through and how that might be feeding this entity that feeds on on grief and the aftermath of of a tragedy like this. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you do sort of I I think that what's interesting about Glory thus far is that while clearly reeling from all of this, from her kids getting expelled from their school to being accosted at, you know, just trying to have a quiet dinner, like in a really, you know, kind of menacing way, um, that she seems to have a good deal of metal to her and, and a sort of, you know, she, a, a toughness to her, which is not to imply that anyone who succumbed to this thing, this force, uh, was not a strong person or whatever, but like, right. I think it'll be interesting if, the, if we keep with Julianne Nicholson's character to see how over time she's kind of comes to stand up, uh, in, in opposition to this thing, you know, or if she does. Right. If she succumbs or if she survives. Um, I do want to say my, my main critique of this episode, <laughs> um, uh, and it has to do with my personal, Frustration with the way that journalists are sometimes depicted, uh, in film and television. Uh, Richard, tell me if you have ever met a journalist who would fake three letters of recommendation in order to pretend to be, um, a homeschooler in order to try to like get a story about a, a woman and her children. Yeah. I don't really know what that was all about because like on the one hand, I guess it was important to show that like people feel this incredible, like galling sense of like, they can just like insert themselves into her life whenever because it's a, a tragedy to, to be, you know, mined or exploited or whatever. Like, I think that that's an, you know, I think that for people who become, you know, uh, dwell on in the, you know, under the scrutiny of the public eye, like that, that's something they have to deal with. But I just didn't understand what the end game, what there was. Like, at what point was this person going to be like, Oh, by the way, I'm actually a journalist who's trying to write a sympathetic piece right. about you. Like, it just seemed like if the whole thing is predicated on such a lie like that, like considering her children were expelled from school and she's trying to find them a home tutor or whatever to, to, to kind of do that as like a disguise. And then later at some unknown point, like reveal all and have that be okay. Like that seemed like poor planning on, on this, I guess would be journalist part. Yeah, absolutely. I was like, what are you even like? And then if she did get, if she never revealed herself and did get stuff on the record, by the way, cause she had her tape recorder going, like she couldn't use that. Like what, what even, um, anyway, I just, I just, like, there are times when these depictions of journalists and like Richard Price knows better. So I don't really know what's happening here, but I was just like, what even is this at all? Like, unless she's like a super, 
trashy tabloid journalist and I don't know any of those people. Like, I was just like, this is, well, they, this is look, ridiculous. They clearly exist. I mean, look at all the stuff in, in the UK with the sun and Piers Morgan and all the, the, the wiretapping, yeah, grieving people. Like, I mean, there's definite, definite precedent, you know, uh, both here and abroad. Um, I just, I guess I do, I think in the wake of Richard Jewell, the, the movie with where Olivia Wilde's character plays a really nefarious journalist, it's a little bit, I, I think more from a sort of like literary perspective, it's like, it's kind of a tired crutch to lean on to be like, oh, and, and everything's bad for them because everyone is, uh, prying into their lives and, and, you know, and, and here comes that in the form of like the sleazy journalist, you know, it just, it sometimes feels a little, uh, easy, I guess. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and felt a little bit, uh, I just feel like Glory would have been somehow more wary uh, of this than to, to let that woman into her home, but I don't know. Yeah, but she did, I mean, she was kind of onto her seemingly from the start, and then that woman right. couldn't do, like, basic division, which was confusing. So anyway, um, let's just, uh, roll on. I don't know that I could have done that, to be honest. <laughs> Am I allowed to use my phone calculator on this? Right, no. Exactly. Okay. Um, all right. So let's, let's roll on to, um, to the meat of the episode, which is, um, Holly's investigation. So the thing that I keep talking about that, that is in the series that I believe is not in the book, though, please, if I'm wrong, correct me, but I tried to look it up and I believe that this is true. Um, is all the stuff with Maria and Holly going, like the character of Maria at all, oh. Holly going to New York. All of that stuff, uh, is, it, it sort of, it, as far as I know, is not in the book that as far as I know, um, she traces the thing to Heath and doesn't like go back beyond that. Um, but something that, uh, Richard Price said in an interview that I was reading, um, with, uh, the New York Post is he said, uh, I followed the events of the book, but the issue was 10 hours of TV time. By the third hour is halfway through the book. I had seven hours to go. So, you know, in order to make, to turn this Stephen King book into a, you know, a, a miniseries, he had to flesh it out, which means that Holly follows the investigation a bit further. And I think culturally, there are some good reasons for that, because this idea of El Coco, which we will talk about, is in the book, but does not, I don't believe comes from anyone of like Cuban descent as the woman who was talking to Holly about it. Uh, so I think it's, it's better to have this monologue come from a woman who has some connection to that culture, uh, rather than someone else. So I think that that was a smart adaptive choice there. Um, yeah. But- and it was, it's, you know, it's Richard Price. It's not going to, we're going to end up in New York at some point. <laughs> yeah. So for, if you don't go to Rikers, is it really a Richard Price yeah. book? Um, so, uh, let us talk about, um, how that relates to the opening of this episode, which you mentioned that there's like a few things in this episode that you're like, what am I watching? And then later it becomes clear. And the opening of this episode is one of those moments where you're like, we haven't even met the Maria character. So we were like, what, what am I watching exactly? What is this breakfast? Who are these? I mean, Heath's there, but like, you know, what am I watching here? And then like, but to see her face change, this actress, um, and let me look up her name, but like, uh, to see that, that performance of like a very flirty, like whatever happy breakfast. And then like the camera catches her face just like changing and it is very unsettling. Uh, we find out later that that's because, you know, it's a doppelganger and not Maria herself. Um, but like, what do you make of the use of that cold open and then sort of how it comes back around in the book, in the episode? Uh, yeah, I just like the way that this show thus far doesn't let us forget, like that little, little things like, like, you know, obviously Heath is going to be a major part of this, but like we're introduced to him in a similarly kind of, um, obtuse way where we're like, what, what is this jail stuff? Like, but then we have to remember him and then we see him further back in time and like, I love that, uh, in this episode, the, uh, receptionist at the nursing facility later on is like part of the narrative because Holly kind of waits for her after work, you know? And like, I just like that, like the, the world of this show feels complete and everyone has a little role to play. So I like that aspect of it. I also love the reveal that this flashback we see at the beginning that I thought at the time was supposed to show now miserable characters and happier times, but in fact was only showing one person in happier times than the other was you know another thing um and i thought that i thought that was like well done and and really you know there wasn't a ton of indicating when 
uh, in the jail scene with Holly where when she's like, no, I never, I'm, yeah, like, I guess he was like flirty, but I never ended up going. And then the the, the, the story kind of moves on and you're like, oh, well, well, wait, that means that she was, you know, um, so I, don't know, I just I think that information was meted with the exception of the weird thing in the woods with the deer and the furniture. I think that information was meted out very interestingly in this episode. And you know, is it a narrative conceit that like a woman at one table over in the visitation room would overhear this and yeah. go so far as to give her her address kind of subtly and tell her to come the stranger to come to her home? Eh, yeah. Maybe, but like also maybe there's a kind of underground knowledge you know circuit of people who believe in this stuff and share it with each other and maybe even kind of subtly or passively in some ways keep track of it um just to kind of know where that energy uh is at any given time i don't know but um i still i mean i love the scene in in the apartment where really the kind of creature feature thesis of the show is laid bare yeah absolutely and um, we will we will get to that boogeyman um, in a second, I promise. But I do want to zoom back to like the first half of the episode, which sees Holly getting some information um, from a fellow, uh, or you know, a, another detective. Uh, the character's name is Andy uh, Katkavaje, I think. I, I might have just completely butchered that, but he is like also Lithuanian. This is like the whole like Lithuanian connection that Richard Price wanted to do or whatever. But um, but like it. If she's getting information about the case that she needs. Once again, I don't think this is in the book. Please do write in and correct me, but I tried to like look for this character's name in any coverage of the book and I couldn't find it. I should just buy a copy of the book. I apologize. I should do that. But like, um, I don't believe it's in the book, which means to me that Richard Price is like, okay, my character needs to get, she has like basically four people she needs information from in this episode, right? The receptionist from the hospital, Maria at Rikers, and then this like helpful eavesdropper uh, in her apartment. Right. Um, and then this guy. And so she's like, um, he's like, how can I break this up? So it's not just like Holly sits and listens four different times. And then he like adds this sort of like, Frisson of romance that I found very endearing and charming and like engrossing. And so you're, you're getting exposition, but you're getting it in the, in the packaging of like this possibly first date or whatever. And I don't know. I just, I don't know if this is like, uh, lame and basic of me, but I found it very, very charming. Yeah. And I like the way that this show, and I think, you know, this may, okay, maybe credit to King as well, but also certainly to Price. I'm a little more familiar with his style. Uh, that, you know, this is a show about investigating horrible, horrible things that are more and more likely caused by something supernatural and, uh, unfathomably powerful. Um, and yet it's a show that also allows for little human moments like him being like, Oh, well, we didn't order. And she's like, I'm not hungry. And he's like, Oh, kind of deflated. Well, do you want another Coke? And she's like, no. And she's like, uh, double whiskey with water back. And then he, he like lights up and he's like, Oh, I guess I'll have the same too. I just love the way that the evening just kind of shifted for him and for her. And, and I think I liked watching her decide to let it shift that way, you know, to make it, to make it shift that way. Um, I just thought that was very sweet and, you know, sort of, you know, made me think of, of moments in my own life when someone has surprised me and been like, no, let's like, let's stay out or let's, you know, you know, I, I, I don't know. I thought I, I like that scene quite a bit. I get, this is, I don't know if this is like, um, lame or whatever, but I get like really excited anytime someone's like, well, not every, every single person. I'm sure there are people where I'm like, Ooh, no, thank you. But when someone's just like, uh, let's get another round. And you're like, yeah, yeah. Okay. okay totally, yeah, totally. exactly. It's such a great exactly. feeling. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, not, not all the time, obviously, but like once yeah. in a while when someone surprises you and you're like, Oh, cool. We're not going oh. around, you know? Um, yeah. Oh, you yeah. want to talk to me for the time it takes you to drink a whole nother right. drink. And that, she was yeah. like double whiskey water back. And I was right. like, that's the serious. I want to continue this evening, uh, move. So yeah, yeah I really liked it. Um, all right, so uh, the actress who's playing Maria is uh, Diani Rodriguez, uh, and I thought she was great. And and that the whole stuff with her, you know, we 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 got it with Terry when he was in prison. We didn't really like meet Heath that much. Like he was pretty pretty quiet uh, in the times that we met him in prison. But like to watch her and her anger and her frustration at being like falsely accused. Like you really understand why this is a project that Richard Price thought was interesting. Cause it's like, you know, this is, this is the premise of the night of, right. Which is like, 
you know, false imprisonment or whatever. So it's like the frustration and then the injustice of, uh, of being falsely accused or falsely imprisoned, but make it spooky. Um, and so I, I just really thought this stuff with, with her and like, why is she alive? Because she refused to let her fellow inmates kill her basically. Like, uh, and I just, I thought all of that was pretty, pretty well done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So that brings us to the, the naming of the, the boogeyman in this episode, um, which is, um, El Coco or whoever you want to, Baba Yaga, uh, Baba Yaga. Um, and this is interesting. Okay. So Stephen Miller. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you caught me off guard there. Um, all right. So, um, the, uh, okay. I'm going to say something and it's going to sound like an insult, but I don't mean it that way, which is this reminds me of episodes of like charmed or supernatural or X-Files or uh, to use a more modern example, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, where, like, someone had a really fun time looking up, like, the Wendigo or whatever, and is, like, look has looked up a mythological creature and been, like, cool, this is going to be the episode where we explore this, like, uh, mythological creature. Um, so El Coco, if you don't know, is, like, an actual, like, Baba Yaga. It might sound a little bit more familiar to you, but this is like an actual um, mythological uh, figure, uh, child snatcher, child eater, um, shapeshifter. Um, I, I, what I think is interesting is I, this is where I really want the King fans to like write in and correct me if I'm wrong. But my sense is that usually King creates his own iconic or mythological boogeyman. You know what I mean? You've got like, a flag or like, you know, there's, there's just like, there are boogeymen that I associate with Stephen King. And I don't know how much I've seen him appropriates the wrong word, but do you know, like utilize something from mythology in this way? Um, and, uh, I like it. Um, but I have some questions about it. Uh, what do you think, Richard? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I mean, we don't know what this thing is actually going to be. Maybe it's something similar to these myths, but not actually those myths, you know, right. uh, or lore or whatever you want to call them. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm kind of like waiting to reserve judgment on that. But what I liked about the kind of ends of the episode that relates to that, I promise, uh, when, when, when Holly is in the tub, just doing some research about, you know, El Coco and, and, and various other, um, you know, iterations of this kind of, this myth, uh, is that she looks at these pictures of teeth gnashing monsters and, and she seems alarmed and the show's music kind of indicates that she's alarmed. But then there's this much plainer, subtler drawing of a, of a hooded figure, you know, kind of just mm-hmm. looking at children and it's so much scarier than the big gnashing monsters. And so I like that the show, and to me anyway, was sort of restating or stating anew its kind of like aesthetic thesis, you know, which was like, uh, we're not going to, I don't think we're going to get into a real like literal like creature monster thing. It's going to, the scarier thing is if it's just one thing removed from being human, you know, uh, that its face is messy as, as, um, you know, Terry and Gloria's daughter put it. Um, yeah, I, I I love that. I because that's something that I've been worried about. Because like, I think that Stephen King um, is strongest when he gives us horror that, as you say, is like one step removed from like like ruining circus clowns forever, or um, you know whatever it is, or his villains that like have a very um, have very mundane names. Like, like, um, Annie Wilkes, the fan who's like, you know, Randall Flagg, who's like the devil, but like Randall Flagg is such like a normal name or, or like Percy from the Green Mile or something like that. You know what I mean? Like there are these like, that King I find the scariest and, and the most interesting. Uh, and then when you have like, you have to literally fight a monster King, like, literally literally find a monster that's that's the king that doesn't always super work well for me so i'll be curious to see where they go with all that um i did want to talk about the paintings okay because so um one of the paintings that she looks at is uh saturn devouring his son by goya that's the painting that i like recognized and i was like it was so funny i had such like a oh like 
really lame snobby moment where I was like, does that really fit? Cause that's, that's mythology. I don't know if that really fits. And then they like showed the title. I was like, someone messed up and put that in there. And then they showed the title. I was like, Oh, never mind. And then I felt even more stupid because that painting that you mentioned, the one with the hooded figure is also a Goya. So she went from like Goya to Goya. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is called, is titled, uh, KVNA El Coco, which is the name of, uh, the episode and also a lyric from the song that, um, the eavesdropping woman sings. Um, so that's from 1799, painted by Goya, KVNA El Coco, and it is terrifying. Um, you're right. All, like, just the hooded gathered fabric around, this figure and you don't see the face, just the terror of the children and the anguish of the mom. And yeah. uh, that's great stuff. Really, really good. Yeah. And, and, and Saturn devouring, uh, his child, um, well, I mean, it's kind of a go-to joke thing. I, I oftentimes am like, Oh, I took a selfie and then I post that. Yeah, I've seen you use that. Um, cause it, cause it's so, such a horrifying painting. And I think that yeah. something that is particularly horrifying about it is the look of almost surprise in Saturn's face and a little bit of like horror at what, at what he's doing. Do you know what I mean? But there is that kind of still that kind of animalistic need to feed. And I think that clearly speaks well to, um, to what, you know, the, 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 the entity that we're, we're, we're kind of circling around here, uh, is driven by, um, because like, why wear a hood? A hood presumes a little bit of shame in a way yes because they want to hide in plain sight and no one can see their messed up face but also there's a sense of of lurking of 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 observation and and if you want to eat a child if you want to watch their family you know crumble in concentric circles out and out and out um doesn't that suggest a certain maybe envy uh, you know, an anger toward them because of something they have that you don't, you know, that this entity doesn't. So I don't know. I, I, I like the, what that kind of all implies that, that this, and it makes it scarier. If it's not just a monolithic totem of evil, but if it's actually something that has a little bit of pathos to it, maybe like that, I feel like that makes it, um, scarier, just like that painting. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And like this idea of, of a creature that's not just like a grief eater, but like a, happiness eater you know Mm -hmm, what i mean mm -hmm. like you know uh, devours your happiness destroys your happiness and then eats up the grief um as well as as dessert as this woman uh puts it so yeah uh, the the thing that i like that um this episode does because i think there can be some like eye-rolling stereotypes when you have someone be like let me tell you the folklore of my people. And you're like, okay. But what I like is that Holly has her own sort of folkloric uh, tradition. And we've seen her like, I really love the, um, the MRI scene, you know, where like Mm -hmm. she has this flashback to an MRI, you know, one of the many tests that she had undergoes a child because she was so strange and um, sorry, strange is not probably the word I want, but like um, all these tests that she underwent as a child and that like, she had a vision, I think, of her grandmother giving her this like totem that would protect her. And she's reminded of it by seeing this other totem that's hanging from, um, the rear view of her cab. And we've seen her put out various totems, like when she goes somewhere. So like this idea that she has such an interest and connection to folklore and that El Coco or Baba Yaga or whatever is a notion that's so petrifyingly strong that it, transcends culture and it is just something that has existed uh in in if you go to uh it was kind of fun i spent some time on it earlier but if you go to the wikipedia entry for the boogeyman uh which has that uh kvn el coco uh painting as the like thumbnail on the boogeyman wikipedia page there's just a hundred entries from every country and what their version of the boogeyman is. Uh, and that is, that's really, uh, that's a fascinating and, and fun, fun thing to look into. So, and I love the, um, the symbolism at the end of the episode of, you know, Holly kind of perched on this precipice of, all right, am I going to accept this? Is this what I'm looking for? Is this what's happening? And then, plunging into it you know i mean the last shot is her going under the water of the bathtub and i think it's just her deciding like okay like let's we're going down the rabbit hole you know and i think it marks such a it's a subtle visual cue in a way but it it marks such a a kind of 
um, direction shift for the show as a whole. I just think that these episodes, I think this is Andrew Bernstein directed this episode. I think they're very, yeah, there's times when it's a bit heavy and, you know, maybe even turgid, but like, I think in other ways they're very subtly directed and I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I like, I like the way the universe is expanding. I mean, we went to a whole nother state. Yep. Um, but as you say, in reusing various side characters, it feels, it doesn't feel like, you know, loose or sloppy or shambling or like I can't track it. It all feels sort of woven and connected. Um, the other thing that I want to, um, say is a departure from the book, but once again, please email us, uh, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. If we're wrong about this is as far as I can understand it, the way the thing is transferred, in the book is a cut on the hand and they've used the word cut a couple times. And it seems to be, you know, at least for, for Terry and for Claude on in and around the hand or the hand or the wrist or whatever. Um, I like that they made it just scratching more than cutting. And so then I really like the fact that we get this like sex scene. She scratches up his back and that's, that's the scratch uh in this uh instance and it just feels more like primal and scary than just like a cut on the hand 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 it's like you could get scratched anywhere bud and then your whole life's gonna get stolen uh and so be on the lookout uh, yeah and 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 what does that mean it means that this creature has to touch you it has to connect with you it has to in order to become you for a second and then ruin you you know like so again i feel like there is maybe somewhere a yearning in this bad thing uh, you know, that no, we're not that we're supposed to be sympathetic to it, but that sort of, I don't know, frames it all just that much more creepily. Absolutely. Um, all right. Anything else? I mean, we met, we met Peter Maitland in this episode. It wasn't quite the like, it wasn't quite what I was expecting it to be, though he does say at one point, like, he had you all fooled or something like that. You know what I mean? So there is some like clarity, yeah. like clarity through dementia, which is, you know, a little bit of a trope, but I think done you know well uh in this episode yeah it's a, um, it's an effective kind of chill you know creep you know chilling moment you're like yeah. like what did he knew something but but couldn't yeah. express it yeah uh he says stuff that we can decide if it's relevant or not he says four jacks four queen you know there's there's some like ramblings from peter maitland that if we decide it's relevant to the mystery we can uh overanalyze but i i am always very worried about being wrong when the book exists out there that i haven't read so um there's that. Uh, one other thing I did want to mention is I do love that, um, the receptionist for, or, you know, the nurse, I don't know if she's a receptionist or a nurse, but the woman from the hospital, like just straight up pepper sprays Holly. Like yeah. I thought that was a great moment that Holly is just like following her and then gets like fully, fully pepper sprayed and has to like prove th- who she is before she gets help. Um, so that was a good moment. And then the, I guess the last thing I want to say is something that I really liked because I think, um, I think both the woman who works for the hospital um, and then later when they're talking about what happens to Heath's mom, I think they repeat the phrase like um, sort of like, oh, what is it? Uh, I didn't write it down, but it's something like uh, makes, makes a mother proud or something like that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, you hear it twice and that almost seems like a, you know, one of those like, uh, supernatural sort of incantation, get in your head, sort of like, look out for the repeated phrases of people who are like judging you and talking about you. And that's what works its way into their head and makes them, you know, drive their car into a telephone pole or shoot up a bar or whatever it is. Um, I don't know. I find it very creepy and effective. So, yeah. Anything else? Anything you're you're looking forward to seeing now, given all the new information that we have now? I'm looking forward to uh, Holly presenting all of this to who are otherwise pretty, so seem, or seemingly very skeptical, you know, small town law enforcement people. And I'll, I'll be curious to see how that goes over. I hope she was like she was actually putting together a PowerPoint, and she's going to be using all those Goya paintings as her slides uh, <laughs> yeah. when she presents. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What I what I will say is that you know, so we are now officially, I believe, 
Is it a 10 episode? I know I already asked that. I think it's 10, yeah. Okay, then we're not halfway through. Okay, well, next week we'll be halfway through. It's not the, you know, to Richard Price's point in that interview, um, I, I found the where we are at the end of episode four, like, I don't need this show to end in two more episodes. You know what I mean? I think I was worried that we'd only have like six episodes worth of uh, story. Um, it remains to be seen if we have, if we actually have six more episodes of story after, uh, this episode four, but like, I think I was worried that we had too little story for the amount of episodes. So, um, but I'm feeling less worried about that after this episode. Well, yeah. I mean, my guess would be that this becomes a quest story in that, you know, we identify the big bad and then we have to go get the big bad, you know? Um, so maybe that's the back half. I'm not, I, I don't know, but, um, that would be my guess. Yeah. It's interesting because we already know who's next in Claude. So that's interesting, you know, like, yeah. um, so, and it, it, not only we, but like, it seems like Ralph kind of knows, right? Like Ralph's already asking about the cut on his hand or wrist. So I don't know. We'll see. Hopefully six more, um, episodes, uh, maybe many more dates, for Holly and Andy, I'm really invested. Uh, and uh, that's about all we have to say. Once again, please, if we got anything wrong about Stephen King, nobody uh, emailed us about uh, the very sensitive conversation I was trying to uh, tiptoe around last week. So hopefully that means we didn't say anything completely disastrous. Or if we did, uh, maybe people just stop listening. But hopefully uh, that means we didn't. Um, but if you have anything to say to us, please do email us. Uh, whether it's about pigs or not, uh, still watching pod at gmail.com. Until next week, Richard, where can folks find you? Well, I'm, I have, I'm, I'm in Utah at the moment for the Sundance Film Festival, but I think I have to rush home. I just, I have all these original Goya paintings and I just want to go back <laughs> to my house and cover them up because they're creeping me out. I just don't like the thought of them sort of staring out into the dark of my empty apartment. So I got to go do that. Uh, but in the, if I have some time on the flight home, I'm going to be tweeting from Rylaws and uh, uh, writing Sundance reviews from VF.com. Joanna, where will you be? Um, I really wish, I, I know you told me that um, Park City, Utah isn't that cold right now, but like, I kind of wish I was in a, a, like a very cold place so I could wear like gloves and hats and scarves at all times so no one could scratch me oh, and affect call. me. Um, <laughs> I am scratch proof at this point. Yeah. Um, I just want all the winter wear. Um, so yeah, so you can find me shopping for winter wear, uh, tweeting at Joe wrote this. You can, Richard and I both will, uh, be talking about award season on the little gold men podcast and, uh, over on VF.com. So we will see you. In who knows what state, in who knows what maximum security prison, uh, next week on Still Watching the Outsider. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.